Well, we're in Ruth chapter three. We're going through the book of Ruth. I specifically want to focus our attention on verse 18 uh, as we finish uh, up the scene two of a wedding in three scenes. If you don't have an outline, but you want one, uh, ushers out there, Robert and those guys, uh, are there any outlines left out there in case you need one? Uh, because the front of the outline we've already covered, but I'm going to run through it real quick because it's been a couple weeks. If you raise your hands, if you want an outline to take notes, but you don't have it, there's uh, someone up here. Uh, I wanted to see, I thought I saw Sebastian. Could you stand up? Uh, oh, you didn't say Simon says. No, I'm just kidding. Um, when are you leaving to go back? Tonight. Tonight flies back to Philadelphia to finish his thanks to finish his time at Urban Hope Training Center in Philadelphia. Uh, so please be praying for him being equipped with ministry skills in an urban setting. Uh, and you will come back. So, OK. All right. Don't make us come and get you because we will. Uh, they like to steal our people out there. We got good. We got good people here. They're always trying to steal our people. Uh, but yeah, well, we're going to keep them here. Uh, and then Alex Almeida, 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 also known as Bubba, I guess, at home. Uh, do they still call you that at home? Oh, I wasn't supposed to say. OK, could you stand up for a second? Do you guys remember this guy? OK, all right. He's been gone a year. Uh, thanks, Alex. Studying at a Bible Institute in Florida. Uh, and he is praying and investigating what the Lord has for him next. Uh, visiting different Bible colleges, but uh, your heart right now is kind of leaning towards something ministry related. Is that true to say? And you're praying about another guy thinking about ministry. That's two. Uh, so and then uh, I saw that Nayeli brought her little baby uh, and the little one, too. Uh, oh, so. Oh, they're out there. Sorry, Cameron. All right. OK. It takes two to raise their first child. Okay, so it's nice to see them. But is that in here anywhere or is he out there? You don't need to come in. But uh, I just wanted to point out that we uh, we had our district pastors meeting this last week in Boyle Heights. Uh, We had about 20 that gathered uh, at a church. Uh, Actually, uh, Joey and Josie's uh, niece and nephew's church there kind of on the edge of Boyle Heights off of Whittier Boulevard in East L.A. We had a meeting, then we went over to the park to pray, and then we went to lunch in Boyle Heights. Uh, but it, the purpose was to share uh, what our church has been doing over there because some of the other churches in our district are interested and want to know. So that was exciting. I just mentioned all these things because there's a lot going on here. Uh, God is using us. Uh, we're humble servants. We're not boasting. Let he who boasts boast in the Lord. But our impact as a church uh, is being felt all over the country, is it not? Uh, Tim just got back from Ohio, and goodness knows they need the Lord over there uh, in Ohio. He had some board meetings over there. So anyway, just a lot going on, so we praise the Lord for that. Uh, so we've been in the book of Ruth. Uh, we learn, we've been learning a lot about marriage uh, as well as other things uh, that we've been touching on. Uh, but it got me to thinking, especially after I saw a, a report released just this morning, Uh, In connection with marriage, anyway, that people can be faithful. We do have a marriage crisis in this country. There's no question about that. Uh, Not only is marriage under attack, uh, marriages uh, seem to fall apart very quickly these days. Uh, But I started thinking how interesting it is 
for whatever reasons that marriages don't last. And sometimes people are victimized. Uh, it's not their fault that the marriage doesn't last. But uh, but it was interesting. I started to think how we are created by God to be faithful, uh, that we will be faithful. All of us are faithful to something. Because that's the way we're created. And you're like, what are you talking about, Pastor? I'm not even in a relationship. Uh, We were created to be faithful creatures. So we ask ourselves, to what or to whom are we faithful? Some of you would never think about leaving the house in the morning without that cup of coffee. uh, Because you don't want anyone to get hurt. And so you, I mean, we have our routines, don't we? We are faithful to things. So I saw this report by a group called 24-7 Wall Street, and they worked with a data company called Placed Insights. And that company monitors hundreds of thousands of consumers every month. So they have this list of the top 15 uh, stores in America that we like to visit. Uh, And it was interesting because keep this in mind, uh, those that did this study said they were surprised that Americans like choices, but not too many choices that Americans tend to be very faithful to the stores that they visit. In fact, the top store visited uh, on this list in April of 2016 was visited by more than 52 percent of all shoppers Uh, and the second place store. 49.8% of shoppers in April visited this store. So you're interested to know. We'll we'll do that another time. No, I'll tell you. All right. No, I'll tell you. It is interesting. We'll do it real quick because it's not pertinent, but it's fun. Coming at 15th place is 7-Eleven. Do we even have 7-Elevens here? Oh, yeah. There's one by Robin's house, isn't it? Okay. Did you ever go there? Okay. How many of you have been to 7-Eleven in the last two months? Oh, Really? I'm surprised. Okay. I don't like nicotine donuts, so I don't go there. Okay. Number 14, Lowe's department stores. 16% of all shoppers visited a Lowe's store uh, in April. Number 13, our favorite pigtailed redhead, Wendy. Uh, Wendy's. A lot of murmuring. Okay. Number 12, Shell Station. I was surprised by that. 18% of shoppers in April visited Shell Station. But the point we're making is people are faithful. The list isn't very long because the list of stores we Americans like is not that long. Number 11, guys, you like this, Home Depot. Uh, Home Depot came in as the 11th most, most visited place by American shoppers. Number 10, what do you think? We're getting in the top 10 now. It's like the Olympics. The Dollar Tree. You know, Sears is a good guess, though. Though Sears is kind of going down. Uh, The Dollar Tree. How many of you have been to the Dollar Tree in the last couple months? I know my wife uh, went and got some stuff for our CEF day at the Dollar Tree. So number nine, if you like royalty, you'll like Burger King. Okay, comes in at nine. Number eight, the eighth most visited store in America in April was Taco Bell. Okay. Wow. I'll take two mystery meat tacos, please. Okay. Number seven was CVS. Number six, our good liberal friends at Target came in in sixth place. I thought less people were visiting there now. Okay. Number five is Walgreens. Over 30% of American shoppers visited a Walgreens last month. Anybody been to Walgreens in the last couple months? Yeah. Isn't that Walgreens down here on the corner of Rosecrans and Stuving? Yeah. 
Number four, my personal favorite. I don't even have to tell you. Though we didn't even get the bronze medal. That makes me mad. Uh, It was four. Over 31% of American shoppers visited a Starbucks in the last April. Anybody been there in the last couple of months? Somebody in the drive-thru who knows me spotted me inside. <laughs> so, sorry, Robin. I didn't see you waving, but I was in there. So I was probably talking wherever I was. Okay. What do you think? We got the top three most visited stores in America because we are faithful. We are faithful. What do you think number three is? It's an underground train. Subway. Yeah, subway. If you like slimy, slick meat, you got the bronze medal. There's no secret to the top two stores that Americans are most most faithful to. Number two is, of course, McDonald's. And number one is Walmart. Yeah. Over 52 percent of American shoppers went to a Walmart last April. How many of you entered a Walmart in the last month? Wow. Look at that. Yeah. We go to that Walmart neighborhood market. You know, they have those grocery stores now. So anyway, that's a fun way to look at this. But you see, we can be faithful, can't we? It is our nature to be faithful. We will be faithful. We do develop allegiance. We do make commitments to things and people. Uh, And so in marriage, as we've seen with Ruth and Boaz, even in marriage, Uh, Even though we live in a uniquely evil age, the scriptures tell us. Did you realize that? We study this on Wednesday nights at Bible study. uh, That sometimes we think, well, today isn't as evil as it's been in the past. That's not true. The Bible calls the age in which we live as a very uniquely evil age. Different and more intense than in any age past. And all of these scriptures that you can see there testify to that. Uh, I don't think I put those on your outline. You see the present evil age. Uh, Satan is called the God of this age. You see a spirit in Ephesians 2 now working among people of disobedience. Ephesians 6 talks about the forces of darkness against which we fight. First Corinthians 2 talks about the wisdom of this age. And then Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our Minds, So that we can know what God's will is. So it is no surprise that marriage is under attack in our world, is it? You know, the Apostle Peter says in his first letter, first Peter, he says to his readers, why are you surprised that there are fiery ordeals coming upon you? You know, and some of us as Christians in America today act like we're surprised. Surprised that we're hated, surprised that people are against and hate biblical principles. We shouldn't be surprised, folks. We should be prepared. And I'm just afraid that maybe we're not prepared. We're not prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And we're not prepared to suffer. But folks, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I honestly believe we will see persecution in our lifetime. I'm convinced of it. Have not things changed very rapidly? And we're not going to go down that rabbit trail. But once you legalize an unbiblical form of marriage, the floodgates open because you won't be able to stop any immorality legally. And we're seeing that now. Uh, That's for another time. Don't get me started. Okay. 
Hebrews 13. Remember studying Ruth and Boaz uh, and their relationship. Just a reminder, Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in what? Honor among a few. All. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. What's interesting to me here is he then gives two classifications, two groups or two ways that marriage is dishonored. What's the one that we would automatically think of? Adultery. But notice he says it is also dishonored by what? Fornication. Well, we don't even know what that is because that's a King James word. Nobody knows what that is anymore. Uh, so let's define it, right? If you got your living Bible or your English standard version, you probably have a different word there. But it simply means people who are not behaving sexually as God intended who are not married. Adultery is is unbiblical sexual behavior by the married. Fornication is unbiblical sexual behavior by the unmarried. So it is we dishonor marriage by unbiblical sexual behavior, even if we're not married. Isn't that interesting? Well, how can that be? Because sexual activity is directly tied to the creator God who created our bodies, who created sexuality, who created those things. Ephesians 5, 3. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. Do you ever read a verse in the Bible and you say, Lord, this is just too hard. You know, love your neighbor. I can do that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know. Put on uh, uh, put on peace and gentleness. You know, I'm not the best with that, but I'm working on it. But then he says this. There must not be even a. Only one person said hint. Come on. There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality among you as Christians or any kind of impurity. And what word do I have highlighted and underlined? Greed, which are improper for God's people. Why does he have greed in there? Is he elevating greed to the level of sexual immorality? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying sexual immorality is a form of greed. Have you ever thought of that? Thought of it in those terms? That a person who is enslaved by sexual sin, whatever it is, pornography, uh, adultery, you know, whatever it is. That is a form of greed, because what is greed? Greed says, I want, I want, I want, I want, and I can't stop. Even if I get all I want, I still want more. See, that's the trap of sexual immorality, that you start into it thinking I can stop this whenever I want. And the reality is, no, you can't because you're like an animal trapped in a snare. Sexual immorality is a form of greed comes out of the heart. See, in sexual immorality, everything revolves around me and people giving me what I want. So it's a form of greed. Now, we read this week in our Bible reading group, First uh, Corinthians seven says Paul told them because there were some marriage issues, there, divorce issues, sexual behavior issues in that church. He told them because of the present distress, I think it's good for a man or he says man there, but he means person, man or woman to remain as he is. In other words, regarding your marital status, Paul said things are so bad in Corinth, in your culture, in Greece. Things are so bad, so twisted, so messed up, so distressing regarding sexual mores. Probably you might want to just stay put where you are. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. Boy, that's something we can relate to, is it not? Uh, We have distress in our nation regarding sexual issues right now. Very distressed. And by the way, folks, be a courageous light. 
Don't be afraid to just share what you know from what the scriptures say. And be prepared that most people won't want to hear it. So we're going through the book of Ruth. If we look at chapter 3, look at verse 14. It said, Ruth lay at Boaz's feet, Ruth 3, 14, until morning. And she rose up before anyone recognized. And he said to her, and he said uh, to the workers, don't let anyone know that the woman came to the threshing floor. Nothing happened between them. Uh, it was sort of a, uh, an odd courtship ritual, which we don't have in our culture. He was protecting her purity. He was protecting her reputation. Verse 15, again, Boaz said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So Ruth held it and he measured out six measures of barley and he laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law with whom she was living and taking care of, Naomi asked her, how did it go, my daughter? And, and Ruth said to Naomi and told her everything that Boaz had done for her. That was, must have been quite a conversation. Verse 17. These six measures of barley he gave to me because he said, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. Now, we already had mentioned this before. If you know the story, where we've we been, Ruth had a hard life and Naomi had a hard life, lost her husband, lost her sons, all that stuff. We know the story, a destitute, poor, vulnerable widows. And she told them what God has really dealt harshly with me. Don't call me by my name, Naomi, anymore, but give me the name Mara, which means bitter. Because the Lord sent me out from Israel full. And when I came back, she said I was empty. And by the way, how many of us know what it feels like to be running on empty? But now she begins to see God was always on her side, even in her affliction, even in her darkest times. She was learning. And this is where it's really important. She was learning to interpret her life through God's thoughts rather than her own. Because when we start interpreting our lives through our own thoughts, it can lead to what? Discouragement, depression, real Real deep problems. But now she says, now he says, I don't want your mother-in-law to be empty handed. Folks, don't let that escape your notice. Naomi went from feeling like she was empty to realizing that she was actually full. Because the Lord was still working in her life in her affliction. Here's verse 18 that we really want to focus on this morning. Then Naomi said to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you know how this matter will turn out. For this man, Boaz, will not rest until he has settled the matter even today. Now, we already did these blanks, so I got to fly. So if you haven't been here and you didn't get uh, get these, it's real fast. Maybe work with your neighbor. You take one, you take the next one. OK, because we've already done these. It's already a quarter till. Boaz pledged himself to take care of Ruth. Remember, our Christology in the book of Ruth is what? The. Jesus Christ appears in every book of the Bible. And in the book of Ruth, we see Jesus as our redeemer, our redeemer. Boaz redeems the family name just as Christ came to redeem us. So Boaz pledges himself to care for Ruth. His first response is to bring the Lord into the situation. Is that our first response when we're facing a problem? The first thing we do automatically is turn to the Lord and bring him into the situation. So as we read through the story, we saw this a couple weeks ago uh, that Boaz gave Ruth a promise that he would take care of her. He paid her a compliment, which is always very important. Then 
he gave her a shock by saying, you know, there's another relative closer than me that has the legal right to marry you. I've got to talk to him first. Then he gave her an assurance that he would do. He says, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. He assured her. He made her feel safe. He was going to work on her behalf, whether he was the one that would marry her or not. Then, as we've seen, as we read this morning, he gives her he gives us a reminder of the importance of purity. He was protecting her uh, to make sure that nobody would think wrongly of why she was there. Then he gives her a generous gift and he sends her on her way now. Scene three. I'll go back a split second. I see some of you still looking. A reminder of the importance of purity gives her a generous gift now. Verses 16 to 18. We see scene three. We're doing a wedding in three scenes. Scene three is waiting for the wedding day. In verses 16 through 18. Because Naomi tells her, wait to see how it turns out. He will take care of the matter one way or another. But he's not going to let this go until tomorrow. He'll take care of it today. And notice that there's no telling that they knew how it was going to turn out. In fact, these ladies, though they would have been extremely disappointed, no matter how it worked out, they were going to wait and let the Lord work it out and let the Lord work it out through the lives of someone else. They weren't going to panic. Now, hopefully that's not too tiny. Waiting on God. And sometimes when he's working in other people on your behalf is hard. I thought I would get an amen on that. Okay. But waiting on God, even though it's hard, is always productive. Always productive. Waiting on God is not a passive activity. It's not like I sit here and do nothing and God's going to do everything and work everything out for me. You may get that in some churches, but you're not going to hear that here. Some churches in Houston. I think. Okay. I don't know. They have churches in Houston. I don't know. Okay. Isaiah 20. Hey, I didn't mention any names. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8. Listen carefully. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord... We have waited eagerly for you. It's not we have waited eagerly for you, O Lord. And while we wait, we sit around and we twiddle our spiritual thumbs. Indeed, while following your way or the judgments of your way, talking about the written word, we've waited. Your name, even your memory is the desire of our souls. You guys, let me read that again and and listen Carefully to what Isaiah is saying about God's people. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. And then implied, because whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever the outcome may be, your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. No matter how it works out, no matter what happens, above that, above the answer... We desire that your name be magnified. See, because sometimes when we're between a rock and a hard place and we know how we want a situation to go and we pray 
And we tack on the little addendum at the end. Not my will, but your will be done, O oh Lord. But really, it's my will, please. No, no, no. We say it, but in our hearts, we're hoping that his will is our will. Shouldn't it be the other way around? I mean, this is really what Jesus prayed in the garden the night before he was put to death. Lord, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. Because what thrilled his soul the highest, what gave him the greatest pleasure was that God's will was accomplished. No matter if his personal dreams were accomplished or not. So we see here complete dependence on God while waiting, following God while waiting, obeying God's commands while waiting. Then you go to Isaiah chapter 30. I've got a lot of scripture today. You're going to get that when you come to church. Isaiah, hopefully, I guess to some churches you don't. I don't know. That's uncharitable. Someone said. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. I want to do these verses in order. I wasn't hopped up on caffeine when I put those in that order. I wanted to. Well, I was, but that's not why they're in that order. Isaiah chapter 30, first of all, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Folks, you've got to listen to these words. These are some. If you wore socks today, they might get knocked off. The Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. What he's saying here is that the nation of Judah wouldn't wait on God to deliver them. And they rushed in to take care of matters in their own way, how they wanted it to be done, rather than waiting on God without clear direction And so God said, I can't bless you. I can't be gracious to you because you're not waiting for me. So now I have to wait for you to wait for me before I can be gracious to you. Well, how do you know that? Well, you look back at verses 15 and 16. I'm not just making this stuff up, okay? For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust in your strength. But you were not willing. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we rode on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. The Lord said, wait for me. I'll take care of you. I know what you need. I got you back. I got this all worked out. Keep obeying my judgments. Keep learning my word. Keep following after me and let me take care of the things you can't control. And the nation of Judah said, oh, no, we don't wait. That's not one of our gifts. I always tell people have the gift of impatience. So God couldn't bless them because they were running ahead of him. So you go to. Now, keep your finger in chapter 30, but we go over to chapter 25. You don't have to if you don't want to, because we're going to come back to chapter 30. But chapter 25, verse 9. And it will be said in that day, talking about the future, when the Lord is reigning. Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. 
And by the way, folks, you know from studying the scriptures, when a word is repeated, that means, hello, pay attention. The word waited is there twice. So go back to chapter 30 and pick it up in verse 19. Chapter 30, verse 19. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep. He's talking about the future coming kingdom. You will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you. This is awesome. This sounds weird, right? Bread of privation and water of oppression. He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. You know, God works in counterintuitive ways. God rarely works in the ways that we think that he would work. You know, we're we're trying to work through something and bam, out of nowhere, God works. And we're like, wow, I didn't even see that coming. And he says, that's right. You didn't. But here I am. Notice he says what he gave them bread of privation and water of oppression, meaning there is spiritual benefit in hardship. Ooh, we don't like that. All of, a lot of you went sour. Shoot. I, I had smiles and then I said that and they went, oh, I'm just teasing. There is spiritual benefit in hardship. But we don't live in a culture that values hardship, that appreciates struggle, that sees the benefit in wrestling through things spiritually. And it's interesting, you could go to different places in the scripture. We don't have time to do them all. James chapter one, consider it all joy when lots of good things happen to you. What's he say? Consider it all joy when you experience various trials. Isn't that counterintuitive? Trials producing joy. You go to Romans 5. It's the same thing. First Peter chapter 1. The context of First Peter chapter 1 is suffering, persecution. And then he says because of that, there is joy inexpressible, full of glory. And we go, and you know my favorite theological word for that. How can that be joy inexpressible, full of glory? That is the result of persecution. Because there is much spiritual benefit in hardship. So what am I saying? If you're in a hard time, if you're in a struggle, if you're facing a difficulty, don't be too quick to escape. Because sometimes If we don't wait on God, we miss out on blessings. I know it's counterintuitive. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to relieve pain. We should. We shouldn't try to halt suffering. We should. But if God has a different plan, a different design, we should not be in despair. Because we know that he's working it together for our good. It's counterintuitive, but it's the truth. I think we can leave that passage because we're running out of time. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. And we're going to put it with that first Corinthians. Sorry about that, Matthew. That was my fault. You did a great job. Switch hitting there. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. And then Paul quotes this in first Corinthians. From the days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen 
a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. He doesn't act on behalf of the one who runs ahead of him. He doesn't act on behalf of the one who melts down, freaks out, hits the panic button and tries to take things into his own power. Trying to control things that we have no control over. But he works on behalf of the one who waits for him, who waits for him. Somebody said, oh, but pastor, I, I see an open door and I got to run through it. Well, as one of my professors once told me, be careful, because some open doors lead to elevator shafts. I thought that was good. It's kind of a silly thing to remember, but I always remember that. Just because the door is open doesn't mean we should go through it. First Corinthians chapter two. Verse nine. Paul quotes that Isaiah 64, but it's interesting. The context of first Corinthians chapter two, verses six through the end of the chapter. But just as it is written in verse nine, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And in your Bibles above verse six, do you have an italicized title there? Any of you? What's it say above verse six? Wisdom, spiritual wisdom, because you read that verse and you go back to Isaiah and you think, oh, he's talking about heavenly phenomenon, things that we're going to see in heaven, things that we'll see in the kingdom that we've never seen before. Well, that is what Isaiah is talking about. But when Paul brings it into first Corinthians chapter two, what's he connecting it with wisdom? Well, what wisdom? Well, if you look at verse 10 for to us and now remember us here in verse 10 refers to the apostles only. For to us apostles, God revealed them through the spirit for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So verse 12. Now we apostles have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Things of which we also apostles speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. What what this whole passage is about is the fact that. We do have the ability to wait productively on God because one of the tools he has given us to wait is his written word that came by the spirit through the apostles who wrote that scripture. It is God's wisdom for us to face the things that we deal with in life. Time goes so fast. But here's some thoughts about first Corinthians two nine. I think I have most of this on your outlines because I knew we'd be hard pressed to get this done. This is not referring to physical wonders. It's referring to direct revelation to the apostles, because in verses 10 and 11, he's talking about revelation. How not the book of the revelation in the New Testament, but the revealing of God's word, how it went from the thoughts of God. And the Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God and the spirit brought those thoughts of God supernaturally. First Peter one twenty one to the pen of the apostle who then wrote the words of God that came by the spirit of God from the thought of God. Inspiration, which we just described, verses 12 and 13, you might want to jot down that first Peter one twenty one and then. But we come to illumination in verses 14 through 16, 
which is a work of the Holy Spirit that allows the believer to discern truth from error. Allows the believer to discern truth from error. That's what illumination is. Here's some things that it does not mean. And I put this scripture on your outline. The fact that the Spirit illuminates the word of God and brings understanding to the believer. The Bible tells us that doesn't mean that we automatically know everything. It doesn't mean that we don't need teachers. Ephesians 4 tells us that Christ himself gave teachers and preachers to the church. We also know that it does not mean, and I'm going to get a big groan, it does not mean that we don't have to work hard to understand and learn biblical truth. Paul told Timothy, what? Study to show yourself approved, accurately handling the word of God. And Timothy said, I don't need to study. I got the spirit. I'll just I'm just going to wing it. You know, is that what Timothy said? Yo. Okay, no, that's not what I shouldn't do that, should I? That's bad. Okay. I could get arrested. Impersonating someone cool. Okay. That's not what Timothy said. Studying. Robert in here, or I'll testify. Studying's hard. Studying the Bible takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work to do it accurately. But that's not what illumination means. Psalm 119, verse 18. The writer prayed this. Isn't this wonderful? Read it with me. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. That's illumination. Something that only the spirit can do. And we also know Psalm 119, 105 says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The spirit's illuminating work in our lives and with the scriptures gives us the capacity to discern truth which the spiritually dead cannot discern. We read first John two this morning about how the believer has the anointing. That's another ministry of the spirit that you receive at the moment you accept Christ into your life to save you from your sins. Part of that anointing gives us the spiritual power to work for the Lord. But another aspect of the anointing which we have from the spirit And if you look at the context of 1 John chapter 2, is the Spirit's anointing presence in our life helps us to detect when error is being taught. You see, the whole letter of 1 John is about eight truths or eight characteristics of the truly born again person. And one characteristic of someone who is really truly born again is that he can discern truth from error. So while we wait, he gives us wisdom, right? We can wait productively for God to work his plan in our lives, sometimes through the lives of others and trust him because he has given us his word and his spirit to give us wisdom while we're waiting. I'll just put it this way. If you're waiting on the Lord to settle a matter in your life, then run to the word. Run to the word. Because it is the scriptures that he has given us, divinely delivered to us without air, that is a light, that is a lamp, that is a guide, that gives us wisdom, that gives us his thoughts about whatever it is we're facing. So if you're under it right now, if you're running on empty like Naomi was, then don't just run on empty, run to the word and get a refill. 
We have to do this super quick out of time. How do we make this personal? What have we learned in the book of Ruth so far? That's a lot up there, isn't it? Okay. Sorry. I do love to talk. My first grade teacher put me in the hallway all the time because I'd be done first and then I'd be talking. No matter where she put me, I would talk. And then she got more angry because I'd be the first one done. It was always correct work. It was a nightmare. Okay. Anyway, see, I'm rambling. See, I like to talk. Okay. Ruth has demonstrated priorities in her life. Because of God's grace in her life, she took a very simple approach to life. Folks, life doesn't have to be as complicated as we think. Look, what Ru- look at Ruth's approach. She put the Lord first. She put others next. And she put herself last. She was a servant. That made her life more simple, less complicated. She kept a very positive spirit about her, didn't she? Whereas Naomi, who was totally obsessed with herself, became bitter. And God richly blessed her. Are your priorities in order? Are the things of the Lord the most important thing in your life? Secondly, marriage. We don't have to dwell on this too long. In the book of Ruth, marriage is about serving. And by the way, folks, even today, it's still the truth. One of the reasons God created marriage is to to teach us how to give, because that's not something we do naturally. Ninety percent of marriage problems at the root of them are selfishness. That may sound simplistic, but it's the truth. It's going into marriage or being in marriage with the thought of what am I getting out of this versus what can I give to this? Is this is this word describe what's happening in your home each day? Are you seeking to give or to get Boaz was a selfless provider and Ruth was an influential servant. She may have put herself last, but boy, did she have a lot of influence because of that. Focus, we see in the book of Ruth, verse 18. Naomi said about Boaz, he's not going to rest until he gets this done. Boaz would not rest until his work was done, just as Jesus, our Redeemer, would not rest until his work was done. John five seventeen, Jesus said, my father is always working. I, too, am working. And then in John seventeen four, Jesus said he was praying. He said, Father, I've glorified you because I have completed all the work that you have given me to do. Isn't that interesting? You gave me a list of tasks, Heavenly Father. I've done everything you've asked me to do. Therefore, you have received glory. He was given responsibilities, which he fulfilled. And by doing that, he brought glory to God. You know what that is? That's a theology of work, a theology of career, whatever you want to call it. And then in John 1930, when Jesus was on the cross, when did he die? When did finally he give up his spirit? When he said what? It is finished. I've done everything you've asked me to do. My to-do list, everything's checked off. It's finished. I'm done. Are you faithful in God's work? Whatever it is God has called you to do, whether in the home, in the workplace, in the church, in the family, are you doing the very best that you can do? And are you fulfilling all the responsibility that God has given you to do? Then lastly, Boaz, the Redeemer, points us to the fact that Jesus is our Redeemer. 
And he was going to provide rest for Ruth and Naomi, just as Jesus does. That really the ultimate rest is found only in Jesus Christ as Redeemer. Coming to him, confessing that we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. Then we finally enter into rest. So take it home with you folks from what we've seen so far in the book of Ruth. While you're waiting for the Lord to work, immerse yourself in the word. Always do right while you're waiting. See God accomplishing his will in your life through other people. They are God's tool, not obstacles. And then finally, what does it say? Read it with me. See yourself as full, not empty. It's all about interpretation, folks. Naomi felt empty because she was not accurately interpreting what was happening in her life. Let's stand together. Let's have a word of prayer. That's a lot today. You should be encouraged because I had even more, but we're going to stop. Got to save some for later, right? I really don't even know where to start for the challenge this morning, um, except, of course, first of all, um, I think some of us are striving against God. Uh, Some of us are deeply discouraged, maybe even depressed and Perhaps it's because we're not thinking of ourselves as full. Maybe we're not interpreting through the lens of Scripture and through God's eyes the things that he has put on our plate. You know, and maybe there are even God's trying to shape and fashion you into a more godly person by using other people as tools. And maybe you're, can I say this? You're seeing that person as a tool instead of God's tool. Does that make sense? We sometimes see people as obstacles rather than as instruments of formation. You know, it's all about that interpreting system. And Naomi finally came around. She was still poor. She was still a vulnerable widow. She still had lost her two sons. She had an uncertain future. But she said she felt full because she saw God's hand in her affliction. Isn't that interesting? God works in counterintuitive ways. The blessings of privation is what Isaiah called it. So maybe we're just not looking. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. If any of those things have hit home with you today, just keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. And you know that you just need to look at things more accurately through the wisdom of God's word because you're looking at it through your own human wisdom and you've, get, you've gotten a little discouraged, confused, whatever. Just raise your hand if that's something you know you need to work on. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of you. Lots. Okay. Let your struggles drive you to the word because it is in scripture that God will lead and guide you. Don't try to do it in your own human thinking or in the world's philosophies. Because what did Paul tell the Corinthians? Only the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Spirit of God. And through the resources that he has provided, teachers, pastors, godly friends, the scriptures, the Spirit, he will give you answers. Father, thank you for sharing with us today. I'm a very weak and wobbly fallible servants but your word is perfect so it is your word that I pray gets into our hearts today not my words 
and that your spirit would take your word and give us wisdom in how to live lives pleasing to you in this dark world, especially in the area of relationships as we're studying through the book of Ruth. Father, some of us have people in our lives that we're looking at as obstacles. That's a very self-centered way to think, and we have to ask your forgiveness for that. The people you have placed in our lives are not obstacles. They are tools to conform us into the image of Christ. Father, give us compassion for these people. Remind us to reach out to these people, to put them before ourselves. And we want you to shine through our lives as a testimony. And we want to wait for you to work. And as we wait, we're going to study your word. We're going to obey your word. And we're going to let you be God. And we're not going to try to take your seat on the throne and do it ourselves. And Father, I pray that you give each of us that spirit that is willing to accept whatever you have for us. Father, sometimes it is frightening. Sometimes it is the most pain we've ever felt in our entire lives. Sometimes the loneliness and the confusion is deeper than anything we've ever imagined. But Father, teach us to trust in you, to wait for you, to know that you are with us in those times, that you haven't abandoned us, and that you want to use these times to bring glory to yourself and good into our lives. Father, help us to think your thoughts about the things that you have allowed in our lives so that we can just praise you and that we can have joy inexpressible, full of glory. So, Father, we thank you for saving us from our sins. We thank you for healing our lives. Every day you're transforming us. We pray you pull us closer to yourself and give us a glimpse of your glory and your presence in our everyday lives. Thank you, Father, for every good thing. Thank you, Father, for the difficult things. Because when they come from your hand, they're all good. And so we leave here today rejoicing that you are at work in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.